Hello, 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 true crime listeners. Uh, this is Brianna, host of True Crime and Red Bull. And boy, do I have an interesting case for you all today. So, um, let's get into it, shall we? Once again, I'm drinking Red Bull, <laughs> of course. But, um... So, first, I want to start off by saying thank you to nobody because so far nobody is listening to this podcast besides me and my cat. But she can't comprehend it, so it's basically just me listening to this. But, um, hopefully, I start getting some listeners pretty soon. Uh, this podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, Amazon Music. So, there you have it. So, let's get started. So, this is our third episode, and we are going to be talking about the Salem Witchcraft Trials. Yay! Or boo. I don't I don't know. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> so the Salem witchcraft trials. Everybody pretty much knows what it is for the most part. I'm gonna be diving a little deeper. Just a little bit. I have a feeling that today's episode's not gonna be a long one, but we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But, um, so let's start off by asking the question, how is it possible that in just under a year, 19 people were hanged, one man ended up being pressed to death, and hundreds of people were incarcerated in the town of Salem, Massachusetts, way back in 1692? Hmm? What exactly happened at Salem that caused 19 people, well, technically 20 people, and a couple dogs to die. What could have possibly started that witchcraft hysteria that swept over the town in a frenzy? You know, there have been some theories going around that some of the young women accusers, they were inflicted because they were suffering from condition that they got from eating bread that was made out of spoiled rye. And others say that it was religious strife that was the cause of the trials. But no matter the reason, something happened. Something happened that caused everyone to go insane for the most part. So, Let's begin by talking about life in Salem, Massachusetts. So Salem was just like any other towns in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They were extremely and deeply religious. So Puritanism was the dominant faith. The Puritans were those who wanted to, you know, purify the church as in their name. So they only didn't just want to improve the church too, they wanted to reform it 
into our Protestant direction. But they also wanted to reshape their society as a whole. They did not, the Puritans didn't really like pastime activities such as playing the fiddle and card playing because they thought those were sins in the eyes of God. They stressed the importance of the Sabbath. You know, like in six days, God created the earth, and the seventh day he rested the Sabbath. You know, remember that, I think it was the one of the Ten Commandments, right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? I can't remember. I grew up going to church, but I can't remember. I remember a little bit of the Ten Commandments, but not all of them. But I'm pretty sure that one was one of them. But anyway, I digress. Um, they stressed the importance of the Sabbath, and they spent the day worshiping instead of working or doing any other activities that they did. They believed in strict adherence to their religious doctrines, and they had a strong fear of witchcraft. So Salem was basically a, I don't know how to pronounce this word, I have it in my notes, but a hierarchical society with clear distinctions between the social classes. All right, so the town was split into two simple groups, of course, the wealthy, and then we have the poor. The wealthy, as one would expect, had positions of power and were influential over others. Like, if you are wealthy, you will probably end up being, I don't know, governor, probably the pastor. I can't think of any other positions, but probably along those lines. The poor, who was the lower class, was just those who didn't have any influence, such as laborers, farmers, and servants. You would expect that they were, I don't know what I was gonna say. I, was, I think I was gonna say, you would expect they wouldn't own property, but maybe some of them did own property. I'm not sure, I'm not an expert on it, so don't quote me, but you would, I would expect that at least some of them didn't have their own property and maybe it was just, I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking. <laughs> that happens a lot. But anyway, so now on to Salem's economy, which relied very strongly on agriculture. So the New Englanders, they created small villages and most were, quote, open field, unquote, agricultural communities with narrow strip fields radiating out from the town. That's from my history textbook. I should probably mention that quote. That was not my thought, so. So farming was the primary occupation 
for people living in that town. And among the crops that were grown, there was wheat, there was corn, there was barley. And then we have fishing and maritime trade was also an important part of the economy. In fact, Salem's port was important to export goods to other colonies and to England. So let's talk a little bit about gender roles because that most likely played a significant part in these trials. They were defined very strictly during this time, so men were considered the heads of the households and women had to listen to them and children had to obey their parents and servants to their masters. This is what I was talking about earlier when I said that Salem was a hierarchical, I pronounced, mispronounced that so badly, I'm sorry, was a hierarchy, hierarchical, I see, I'm still not pronouncing it right, I'm sorry, society. All right, so men had to provide for their families. Women had to perform domestic duties such as taking care of the home, keeping it clean, cooking dinner, washing clothes, yada, yada, yada. And they also had to take care of their children. So women basically had very little rights during this time. Uh, they couldn't speak in church. They couldn't get involved in politics. And they couldn't own land. Nope. Despite all this, they were very, Salem was a very close-knit community. Uh, so people lived in small, tight neighborhoods close together. And they had social gatherings in their meeting houses that allowed for meetings or church services. So twice a week, all the community members met in that meeting house. The highest in those small community-oriented settlements was the minister. No one was above the minister. So, as you can tell, like they practiced community watchfulness and each person was basically responsible not only for her own, his or her own sins and transgressions, but for those of their neighbors. They watched over each other. They held each other accountable because that's how close-knit they were. So it was during that time that the belief that witchcraft was real was widespread throughout the colonies, though it was fading in Europe. In New England, that belief lingered because it was, quote, basic to Puritan theology and Puritan theology ruled New England, quote. That's from, um, that's from an article titled An Unholy Mess by A. Brandt. So in Salem, it is unknown if anyone didn't believe in witchcraft, but it's safe to assume that many of the colonies did. So that was basically the setup of 
what light up to the colonies. We know that Puritans believed in God. They believed in the idea of predestination, which is the idea that God elects people before they're even born to see if to he basically determines who goes to heaven and who will not before a person is born. That's what the idea of predestination is. Alright? But God was not the only force in the world that was out there. If you have God, then you also have Satan or the devil. He was a sneaky, sneaky. I mean, I'm an atheist, so I don't know if God and Satan are real or not, but let, for the sake of this, I'm just going to assume they are. And it's just a personal belief of mine. You can believe what you believe, but I honestly don't think it's I don't believe it's real, but anyway, it was very real to them, the Puritans. Um, apparently, according to their beliefs, he could go into the body of someone who was extremely vulnerable and recruit that person to become a witch. A witch defined back then was a woman who made a pact with the devil. And a wizard was a man who made a pact with the devil. So throughout New England back in the 17th century, witchcraft was punishable by death. Evidence of witchcraft had to be solid. Absolutely solid. But this wasn't always easy, of course. Like, how can you prove the existence of the devil? How can you prove somebody committed witchcraft? Obviously, no one's going to admit to being a witch because it was punishable by death. And obviously, nobody wants to die unless you're like extremely suicidal. Like, what the fuck? So, like I said, it wasn't easy because the contract between the soon-to-be witch and the devil was made inside the witch's mind. And obviously people can't read minds or else they would be accused of being a witch. So the evidence that they used was admission of guilt. But of course, usually if someone admitted they were guilty, they were spared from dying. But if you didn't, well, you got hung. So in 1692, fear of what lied in the wilderness and the Native Americans that resided there was intensified by King William's war. So the war was one of the most was one of the multiple conflicts that ended up reaching across the Atlantic 
to the colonies. Colonies settled by the French in Canada had been sending their Native American accomplices to raid the English settlements that were super close to Salem, southern Maine, and New Hampshire. And some people think that this led to the hysteria. And they just thought that the events along with the earthquake that happened in Jamaica that killed about 1,700 people sparked fear in the hearts of the colonies that God was growing really, really, really angry with this world that was full of sin. However, the trials were already taking place when this earthquake struck, so, and problems with the Native Americans, they've always been going on for years and years. You know, we have colonies, colonizers, Ashuri, from the Black Panther, we'd probably say. I've been reading a lot of adventure, Avengers fan fiction, and she usually calls white people colonizers, which is true. We were colonizers. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. But, um, Some people believe that irigatism, I don't know how to pronounce that, so I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. It's spelled E-R-G-O-T-I-S-M. I don't know how to pronounce that, but um, they, some people think that was to blame for the girl's behavior that led up to the trials. So irrigat is a fungus that grows on rye and other grains. So the symptoms, I can't speak today. <laughs> so the symptoms of irrigate poisoning were nausea, muscle pain, itching, and it can also progress to confusion, spasms, and convulsions. And it's been said that contaminated food like bread made from that rye infested with irrigate may have led to the girl's erratic behaviors and the physical symptoms that were seen during trials. So another factor that could have led to the trials was the idea of religious strife, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. You know, Puritanism was a thing back then in that town. But Salem was basically fighting amongst each other. Salem Village, not Salem Town, Salem Village. They've been fighting amongst themselves years and years about whether its church should adopt the halfway covenant, which was the thing that, the idea that loosened the rules of church membership. And that was actually was found, followed, sorry, in Salem Town, or to go and carry on the strict Calvinist doctrine, which separated those who were pre that God had predestined for salvation from the West, from the rest, sorry. That's also from the article I read, An Unholy Mess by Brandt. 
So according to that doctrine, those who were predestined were the only ones allowed who, to do communion. So ministers ended up just coming and going very often as the dispute went in one direction or went completely into the opposite direction. So let's get started with how the hell did these trials begin? Well, let me fucking tell ya. <laughs> we know it started in 1692. It started in January. Alright, so mass hysteria ended up breaking out when several girls fell ill. So, we have this nine-year-old girl named Betty Paris, who was the daughter of the minister, Samuel Paris, and his 11-year-old niece, Abigail Williams. Those girls accused a slave from South America called Tituba of witchcraft, who apparently she told them their fortunes. Some people say the girls are playing at magic. There's like a whole bit different account. There's several different accounts of what actually happened. But all say that nine-year-old Betty Paris and 11-year-old Abigail Williams started having fits and making wild gestures. So apparently this quote-unquote illness was contagious because it quickly spread. And it was suggested that the illness, it was suggested by a doctor that this illness may have had supernatural causes. So the 1st of March of 1692, a total of three women were now stand, standing accused of witchcraft, and their names were Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tituba. So, as you can imagine, you know, they were greatly afraid of witchcraft, and it just, that fear spread like wildfire throughout their community. More and more girls ended up accusing their neighbors of being witches. Innocent people, which in my opinion, all of them were innocent. Innocent people were being accused arrested and imprisoned left and right you'll never know who would be accused you could have a fight with your neighbor and the next second you're being accused of witchcraft and then it's off to the gallows for you if you don't admit your guilt and sometimes if you do admit your guilt sometimes you get hung it's a no-win situation So, the accused were often slandered. You know, slandered because they're being accused of something they probably won't even warrant. Because like I said, in my opinion, I think they were all innocent. But who knows? Maybe witchcraft is real. Anyway, they were stripped away of the rights that they should have had under English law. They were tried and then later convicted with very little evidence on their 
charges. The only evidence that they had was the testimony from the girls, which is weird. They also relied on what's called spectral evidence. That is evidence that is based on like invisible spirits that apparently only the girls could see. Sounds suspicious, right? Yeah, it kind of does. So like I, so it was very close to impossible to dispute the charges of witchcraft. Because like I said, admit your guilt, you could still be hung. But if you don't admit your guilt, you'll definitely be hung. So some of the people who were accused were informed by the courts that if they confessed, they'd be shown mercy. So a total of 54 other witches accused admitted they were in fact a witch to save their own lives. So families of the accused often tried to ask and beg and plead with their relatives and loved ones to confess. But it ended up getting, the hysteria ended up getting so bad that families ended up turning on each other like a pack of wild animals. It's like, for example, when Margaret Jacobs admitted to practicing witchcraft, she ended up insinuating that her own grandfather, who was Reverend George Burroughs, was practicing witchcraft. How insane is that? So from February up until May of 1692, so that's About three months, about 180 residents were accused. For about 144 of those, action had been taken. They'd been chained up and locked in prison for months, living in complete filth. A 55 of the accused had been tortured into admitting that they were guilty. One man in particular stands out, because it wasn't just women that were accused. Men were also accused. You know, John Proctor, he was accused of being a witch after his wife, Elizabeth Proctor, was accused of being a witch. But, um, Gilles Corey was a man who ended up getting pressed to death. He was 81 years old. He ended up getting pressed by stones as an attempt to get him to testify. Yep, you heard me, pressed to death on September 19th. Uh, okay, apparently. Hmm. Apparently I'm getting two different dates here, but anyway, he refused to stand trial, so Gills was pressed to death. He ended up laying beneath several sawn boards that had rocks on top of them. And apparently his last words were believed to be more weight. Wow. So what happens? 
How did the trial stop? Well, I've heard stories that the governor's wife had been accused of witchcraft, so the governor just decided to put a stop to the trials. And then I heard another story that said that there was a sermon preached by Increase Mather that was casting doubt on the trials and the so-called spectral evidence that the Governor Phipps intervened. He ended up issuing a decree that the imprisonments for witchcraft would stop, and then he pardoned the people who had been tried and convicted. And in May of 1693, the accused still in jail were released. By now, the executions were done. So after it was all over, apologies came from the 12 members of the jury, the accusers, and even some of the judges. So one of the most satisfying apologies came from one of the accusers, Anne Putnam. She said that she had good faith to believe that all the people accused had been innocent. And then she went on to quote unquote, beg forgiveness from God. By the year 1711, Massachusetts completely cleared the accused from all wrongdoing and ended up giving money to the surviving family members. But in 2002, a few hundred years later, the state ended up clearing the names officially of the last of the accused riches. Now I'm going to read out a list of the names of the victims. Or at least some of them. On June 10th, Bridget Bishop was the first to be hung. Then July 19th, there was Sarah Good, Elizabeth Howe, Susanna Martin, Rebecca Nurse, and Sarah Wilds. On August 19th, there was George Burroughs, Martha Carrier, George Jacobs, John Proctor, John Willard. September 19th, Gilles Corey was pressed to death. And then on September 22nd, we had eight people hung. Martha Corey, who was Gilles Corey's wife. Mary Esty, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I'm sorry. Alice Parker, Mary Parker, and Brigitte, not sure I pronounced that correctly either. Margaret Scott, Wilmot Red, and Samuel Wardwell. And then there were some who died in jail. So Sarah Good's child ended up dying prior to July 19th of 1692. And then on May 10th of 1692, we have Sarah Osborne. June 16th of 1692, we have Roger Toothacker. December 3rd of 1692, Anne Foster. And March 10th of 1693, Lydia Dustin. Wow. This shit is deep.
Holy fucking shit. Now there was a there was a play produced by the playwright author Milo called The Crucible that was based off the Salem witchcraft trials. It actually was written in a time where in modern day, back in the 1950s, this senator called Joseph McCarthy, I think that's what his name was, was going on a rampage or witch hunt um, looking for communists and he started like blacklisting people. That was the period of time that Arthur Arthur, eh, Arthur Miller was wrote The Crucible, which is based on the Salem Witchcraft Trials. And it was turned into a movie with Daniel Day-Lewis. I love that movie so much. It's a great movie. Daniel Day-Lewis played John Proctor and... Oh, that shit is powerful. But I just can't imagine was going on in their heads for all those accusers to accuse innocent people of being a witch. No one knows if witchcraft is real. Like, oh my god. So, there we have it, folks. The Salem Witchcraft Trials represent a dark chapter in our history that will always continue to fascinate and complex scholars and the public as well. So, in studying this event, we are confronted head-on about the dark side of human nature and the darkness that lives in all of us in all of society. By remembering all the victims of this ordeal, we can make sure that this atrocity is never repeated and justice, true justice, and reason prevail over fear and ignorance. And with that, I will end the podcast right here. So I just wanted to thank you all for listening. Um, I don't know when the next podcast episode is going to be up. But um, soon, probably. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody. And I will see you next time.